I'm Toby Logsdon, and this is your weekly fix of wisdom on BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Lesson 1. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 6, Solomon writes, The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the treacherous will be caught by their own greed. Now, this is obviously not a new concept that Solomon is introducing for us in his collection of Proverbs. Going back to even the first chapter of this collection of wise sayings, Solomon has demonstrated time and time again that the wicked will eventually set foot in the very same trap that they've set for others. They'll eventually lie in the bed they've made at some point or another. Abraham Lincoln once said, No man has a good enough memory to be a successful liar. You see, the more a person lies, the more they have to lie to cover their lies. They end up telling one person one thing and another person another thing, and before you know it, they've forgotten which person heard which story. The only way to cover a lie is to lie some more, and thus the treacherous will eventually be caught by their own greed. The righteous, on the other hand, will have their testimony validated. Not only do people eventually learn to trust the righteous person, but they learn to give them the benefit of the doubt for the most part. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 7, Solomon writes, When a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of the strong man perishes. When you read this proverb, you should first take note of one thing right off the bat. The word his is written in italics, which tells us that the translators inserted it for whatever reason, for clarity. With that in mind, whose expectations die with the wicked man? Well, it's certainly possible that his own expectations are what's being referred to here, but it could also be referring to the expectations of him by others. Maybe it's both. Either way, the wicked man is expected to do things which aren't in accordance with God's plans and purposes for humanity. A person can seem to do great things in the eyes of other men, but in the end, God's purposes will prevail. The expectations that any wicked person has, whether they're successful in life or not, are all that they have and all that they live for, and thus those expectations are all that they hope in. Similarly, Solomon tells us that the strong man's hope perishes. What does a strong man put his hope in? His own strength, obviously. That strength won't last, however. Statistics have revealed that 10 out of 10 people will die, regardless of how strong they are. The lesson here is that wisdom dictates that we put our hope and expectations in the one thing that lasts, God's purposes. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 8, Solomon writes, The righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked takes his place. You see, human beings instinctively want to avoid trouble. Even troublemakers don't like trouble. They do what they do with the hope that they don't get caught, because none of us likes to deal with consequences, even troublemakers. But the Bible makes something clear. We're all troublemakers, and we actually all do it intentionally. There's none righteous, not even one. Nobody seeks God. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. These are all statements from the third chapter of Romans, which make it abundantly evident that every single member of the human race is headed for trouble apart from God's intervention. If God didn't step in to save people, nobody would be able to avoid finding their place in hell. As humanity heads down the highway to hell, few people take time to notice the sign for the exit that leads to faith and repentance. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The truth that God wants all of humanity to be aware of is evident to everybody, and it's intentionally ignored 
by the vast majority. Those who heed God's call to exit the highway to hell find righteousness surrounds them immediately as they enter the road of faith and repentance. And it's that very righteousness which ensures that they won't be able to return to the highway to hell. Thus, the righteous are delivered from the trouble that they undoubtedly deserve, but the wicked are not. In our next verse, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 9, Solomon writes, With his mouth the godless man destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. When we think of a godless man destroying his neighbor, how do we imagine that happening most of the time, say nine times out of ten? Well, we most likely picture him setting his neighbor's house on fire or assaulting his neighbor when he has a clean opportunity to do so. Solomon tells us in this verse, however, that the godless man uses his mouth to destroy his neighbor rather than using physical violence. This most likely refers to some sort of slander, but what does Solomon mean when he says that the righteous will be delivered by their knowledge? Does it mean that the verbal hostility of their neighbor doesn't bother them or that they don't have to deal with what their neighbor said? Well, reading this proverb in its immediate context, we see that the implication here is that the righteous are delivered from the suspicion of ungodly behaviors. When rumors circulate about a righteous person, those who know and admire and love the righteous man will think to themselves, you know, I know him better than that. He wouldn't have done what he's being accused of doing. The righteous aren't immune from verbal assaults of godless people, but they're protected from the backlash that slanderous rumors can create. The one thing that can make a gossiping tongue useless is ears that won't listen. This concludes Lesson 1. Lesson 2. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10, Solomon writes, When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there is joyful shouting. While this section of Proverbs is characterized by Solomon using contrast to teach us wisdom, here we find yet another case of Solomon not making a direct contrast between two things. The word but is conspicuously absent in this verse. There is, however, an indirect contrast being made. Solomon wants us to take note of general reactions. The reaction that people have toward the righteous being successful and the reaction of people in general to the wicked failing or perishing turns out to be the same. And thus Solomon is indirectly contrasting the causes rather than the effects of people rejoicing. I'm reminded of the way that the majority of citizens in Iraq celebrated as America came in and tore down the empire of Saddam Hussein. While many might argue that America had no business going into Iraq. The point that I want to make here is that Saddam Hussein's regime was known among the people to punish anyone and everyone who was even suspected of standing against them. Thousands upon thousands of innocent people were either tortured or murdered under his regime, and the result was that the people feared Saddam Hussein, but they didn't truly respect him. Thus they rejoiced upon his personal and political demise. This is the same type of rejoicing, actually, that one could have found when Nelson Mandela was freed from prison in February of 1990. Mandela had taken a strong stand as a leader in the anti-apartheid movement, and the fact that he was willing to sacrifice himself for such a just cause led the people to love him dearly and to rejoice abundantly when he was freed. The same reaction, but diametrically opposite causes. Why is it that the reaction is the same? Well, Solomon's going to tell us in the next verse. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 11, he writes, By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is torn down. 
The upright demonstrate their influence by being a blessing to their community or to their city, guiding them in the direction of morality and righteousness, whereas the wicked will have none of that. They demonstrate their power and influence by commanding destruction and ruling with an iron fist. Under a wicked ruler, dissension isn't tolerated, and thus the people aren't motivated to be civil by anything other than fear. Under an upright leader, however, people are motivated to behave in a civil manner by love. Think about it. It's because of love that people are enabled to do the greatest good of all, to love God. The Apostle John made that clear as day when he wrote that we love God because he first loved us. That's from 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. As John Phillips writes in his commentary on this passage, Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord and whose legislators believe the Bible, reward goodness, and punish evil. Woe to the nation that turns its back on the word of God. End quote. There are two ways to motivate people, through fear or through love, and that's what Solomon's trying to tell us here. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, Solomon writes, He who despises his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding keeps silent. He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. The subject of this passage is gossip. In its context, we see that Solomon is continuing to teach us that wisdom is demonstrated in how our immediate community operates. One of the worst things that can happen to a person is to live next door to someone who doesn't like them. Nothing, nothing in the world could be more uncomfortable than knowing that your neighbor hates your guts because we just don't like to be in close proximity with those who seem, well, more likely than others to take a cheap shot at any given opportunity. Solomon wants us to be aware of the fact that if we dislike our neighbor, it demonstrates our own lack of sense. The thing to do in such a case is to work to resolve any issues that exist that have caused strife, but the foolish person resorts to gossiping. The wise person, the person of understanding in this passage, on the other hand, knows that it's better to keep silent than to make it known that they don't like their neighbor. As Solomon has already revealed to us in the immediate context, silence will deliver the upright from trouble and keeps the door to reconciliation with one's neighbor open. This concludes Lesson 2. Lesson 3. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14, Solomon writes, Where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Now, we saw back in verses 10 and 11 that the effects brought on by speech can be seen both on an individual level and on a community or even a city-wide level. This verse, however, can be applied from every level, whether it's at an individual level or a national level. It also holds true in the church as well. What we find in the New Testament is that multiple leaders are appointed in each town or each city where churches are planted. There's no indication that there were any churches without any leadership to speak of. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 and 12 that God, quote, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, God provided leadership for the church, and he provided it at multiple levels. It has to be noted, however, that there was never a church mentioned in the New Testament which operated under the quote-unquote CEO model that many churches today use, the top-down model where one man 
and only one man is in charge. Instead, in the New Testament, what we find is that several individuals would serve as leaders of each church. Solomon understood that having an abundance of counselors would protect against things like dictatorships. No one person is gifted with every skill pertaining to leadership, but when many people are able to come together and put their skills together, it brings a balance of power and a variety of giftings into use. Biblically, this is the ideal model, not only of federal government, but of church government as well. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 15, Solomon writes, He who is a guarantor for a stranger will surely suffer for it, but he who hates being a guarantor is secure. The dangers of being a guarantor for a stranger have already been discussed in our study of Proverbs. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, Solomon covered the fact that guaranteeing a debt for someone, which is what it means to be a guarantor, guaranteeing a debt for someone that you don't know very well is a foolish idea. And the best thing to do is to go to that person and back out of the deal before it's too late. Well, today we're looking at this issue from another slightly different perspective. This time we're looking at the issue more in terms of the attitude behind it. Yes, we're supposed to love our neighbor, but that doesn't mean being foolish with our financial resources that God has blessed us with. Solomon's advice is to take the attitude that you hate being put in this situation where someone you don't know very well is asking you to guarantee their own debt. It's been said that if you loan someone $20 and then never see them again, it was a pretty good investment. But 99% of us don't have the ability to loan out $20 to every person we meet. The lesson here is to be wise with our financial resources. In our next verse, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 16, Solomon writes, A gracious woman attains honor, and ruthless men attain riches. Now, a lot of people have interpreted this proverb as saying that beauty is better than riches or that honor is better than wealth. It seems clear, however, that Solomon isn't actually drawing a contrast here. First of all, there's no but in there to show that it's a contrast. He's neither comparing nor contrasting the gracious woman who attains honor with the ruthless man who attains riches. Solomon is simply pointing out that women have a persuasive power in being gracious. Maybe that's why Peter addressed the female followers of Christ who were married to unbelieving men by urging them to be gracious to their unbelieving husbands. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-4, through 4, he wrote, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden heart of the person with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. This is truly the very epitome of what it means to be gracious. That is graciousness. There was once a woman who spent actually a whole year's worth of wages on a single bottle of perfume, which she poured over Jesus as a means of worshiping him. Some of the disciples were a bit annoyed with this act, and they viewed it as wasteful. But Jesus said, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. That's from Matthew chapter 26, verse 13. It's clear then that graciousness not only earns us honor among men, but obviously God appreciates us having a gracious heart as well. Now, the ruthlessness of men might lead to riches, but this verse has to be read in light of the following verse, which says, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 17 says, The merciful man does himself good, but the cruel man does himself harm. A man can choose to be either compassionate or cruel, 
Needless to say, the Bible exalts qualities like mercy and compassion, and it frowns upon qualities like cruelty. Jonah was the perfect example of a man who was called and sent by God to preach to the Ninevites in this example, but he was devoid of compassion for them. The result was not that the Ninevites were hurt. Rather, the result was that Jonah got to taste the bitterness from his own heart as the people of the city responded favorably to his message of repentance. Jonah could have experienced tremendous joy at having this incredibly fruitful ministry. It could have been the best season, the greatest season of his entire life or ministry, but instead his own heart soured the whole experience for him. And it's ultimately revealed that the reason he finally agreed to go and preach to them was because he wanted a front row seat for the time when they'd come under the wrath of God. Jonah certainly had a cruel heart and it ended up hurting nobody except himself. This concludes Lesson 3. Lesson 4. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 18, Solomon writes, The wicked earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. The contrast that Solomon draws out for us in this verse is between deception and reality. The person who trusts in the almighty power of money will work hard for their money. There's a natural tendency in people to think that the reward that they get for their labor will mean something. It determines their income, the neighborhood that they live in, the type of car that they drive, and the types of people that they associate with. It can very easily determine which people we emulate and even which church we attend. Solomon's telling us that people who find their value and their identity in their income are being deceived. Why? Well, let's look at the second half of this proverb. But he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. In other words, income is deceptive because it's not a true reward. While most people work to get more and more money, they're not really getting a true reward. The more money they get, the more money gets them. When you sow righteousness, though, what do you get? You reap righteousness. And that, my friends, is a true reward because there's nothing more important than something that lasts for eternity. Money will come and go, but righteousness produces a harvest that lasts forever. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 19, Solomon writes, He who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life, and he who pursues evil will bring about his own death. Now, while there isn't a direct contrast being made here, there nevertheless is a contrast being made. The first half of this proverb ends with life, and the second half ends with death. The contrast is as much between these two outcomes as it is a contrast between the types of persons who receive either outcome. In this case, the person who is steadfast in righteousness attains life, whereas the person who pursues evil is said to bring about their own death. In the previous verse, Solomon told us that the person who sows righteousness gets a true reward, right? And now we see why. It's because righteousness leads to life. The point here is simple. The direction that you're going now will determine where you end up later. People put off change because they know that change is difficult, but if we take what Solomon is saying here seriously, we should understand that if we realize that we're headed toward death, we'd better change directions, and we'd better do it fast because we never know when we'll fully arrive there. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 20, Solomon writes, The perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their walk are his delight. Throughout the Old Testament, there are certain actions that an individual could choose to make which are described as being an abomination. The implication of this word is that there can't possibly be anything that God is more disgusted by. In this verse, Solomon makes it clear that a person doesn't need to do the most morally reprehensible things imaginable to be viewed by God as an abomination. 
All it takes is a perverse heart. The perverse heart is a heart that is completely and totally devoid of any hint of God's righteousness. And the Bible makes it clear that that's the human condition apart from the righteousness of Jesus. Without the light of Jesus shining in our lives, our hearts are utterly dark and filthy beyond measure. In light of the fact that God will judge every heart, our desire should be to be God's delight. It's amazing, isn't it, that our lives can be summed up by one of these two words, but that's the harsh reality that the Bible gives us. Either God delights in us, and he does so because we've become one with his son, Jesus, and he delights in his son, or he views our lives as an abomination. This is a black and white picture with no gray in between to speak of. The person who abandons themselves to God will never be abandoned by God, but the person who will not abandon themselves accepts the fact that their heart is an abomination. This is a lesson of truth and consequences, as the consequences are revealed actually in the very next verse. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 21, Solomon writes, Assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished, but the descendants of the righteous will be delivered. The fact is that there's an eternal destination for every person. Whether a person willingly receives Christ's righteousness will determine whether the person ends up in heaven or in hell. While Solomon has recently warned us not to guarantee the debt of a person we don't really know, that's exactly what Jesus did on our behalf. God saw that all people had sinned and knew that sin would separate us from him for all of eternity if he didn't step in to remedy the situation. The answer to this problem was that he sent his only son, Jesus, to pay the penalty of sin on the behalf of every person in the world. His death was sufficient for all, but efficient only for those willing to put their trust for salvation in Christ alone. In other words, his sacrifice was enough to cover all sin, but its application was only extended or applied to those willing to have it applied to them. Only Christ is righteous because only God is righteous. In God's eyes, there's only one righteousness, his own. By accepting and receiving the free gift of salvation, the follower of Jesus becomes a descendant of the righteous. In other words, they become a child of God. Only those who can claim this title will be delivered from God's eternal wrath. Those who cannot claim this title will remain perverse in their hearts, as the previous verse told us, an abomination before God who will never enter through the gates of heaven, not by God's choice, but by their own. The lesson here is that there's only one way to stay out of hell, but there's no way to get out of hell. In our next verse, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 22, Solomon writes, As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. Back in verse 16, Solomon told us that a woman who's gracious receives honor. Here in this verse, we're seeing the opposite end of the spectrum. A woman who possesses beauty, but not discretion. In other words, not graciousness. And I love how straightforward Solomon is with this proverb. While outward beauty is nice, it's certainly only a very, very small part of the picture. Women who find their value and self-worth in their outward appearance are bound to eventually hate themselves because outward beauty always fades over time. Nobody's exempt from that rule. The outward beauty of a woman who lacks discretion is thus compared, not contrasted, but compared with the ring of gold found in a pig's snout. Now, the pig's snout is as filthy and disgusting as any other part of the pig's anatomy, and I'll just leave that to your imagination. But with that in mind, what could look more out of place than a golden ring right through the pig's snout? And not only that, but what kind of an idiot would buy a gold ring to put there? 
Similarly, the point that Solomon's trying to make here is that the beautiful woman who has an ugly personality is a revolting sight to see. It's better to be short of glamour than to be short of godliness. I'm Toby Logsdon, and this has been your weekly fix of wisdom on BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus. Hey everybody, this is Toby Logsdon from BibleStudyPodcasts.org. I want to personally thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to listen today and to study the Word of God with us. The only reason that we're able to provide our biblically sound teachings is because of the faithful giving of less than half of 1% of our listeners. I want to just take a moment to thank those of you who have supported our ministry and to encourage those of you who haven't to simply bring the issue to the Lord in prayer. If He's asking you to support our ministry, we depend on our listeners to keep us growing and going. You can help support our ministry by going to Bible Study Podcast podcasts.org and clicking on the support button on the right hand side there you'll find a mailing address or a link to make a donation through paypal we thank you for listening today and pray that the lord has blessed you and strengthened you through our teachings keep growing closer to jesus